1: Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John, or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your question, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both bars and AFC Wimbledon. John, how are you doing today? Well, Hank, I've just returned from a four-hour trip
0: to IKEA, so so not, like
1: it, it was like a four-hour drive to get
0: there. Oh no, no, it's only about thirty minutes away, but we spent a long time at IKEA. We
1: there was many things that needed to be purchased. Oh, it was what, a lot what, it was a big I've never endeavor. Been to, I've never been to one. What I imagine, having heard about them, is that it's basically like you go in and and then you have to like walk a predetermined path. Like there's no like there's no like aisles like a grocery store. I don't know if this is how IKEA is, but this is how I imagine it. Yeah. There's no aisles, it's just like a maze, like a labyrinth that you have to walk through and you just and then at the end of the labyrinth you is the cashier.
0: You know, that is astonishingly accurate. That is more or less exactly what Ikea is like. The only difference from your imagination and reality is that at the end, before you get to the cashiers, there's this huge warehouse where you have to pick out everything that you want. uh, And none of it is, of course, made. And so it's all.
1: (laughs) So then you have to go home. In flat boxes. Put in in 50 hours of labor uh, with you and your very small Allen wrench. Do they have hot dogs at Ikea?
0: I don't know, because the last thing I wanted to do was spend another hour there eating. Um, (laughs) I will say this, though. It is a wonderful, wonderful test of where you're at with your marriage to make IKEA furniture together. Mm -hmm. It's just a great way to check in on, uh, am I able to cooperate with this person in extremely difficult circumstances?
1: I I feel the same way about building furniture and checking in with yourself. Like if you can build an item of furniture without a single time screaming or throwing something across the room, you basically are like like six pat like six steps down the path to enlightenment.
0: Yeah, I've never gotten anywhere close to that. I've never finished an Ikea project without crying. And that includes <laughs> just a few minutes ago when all I had to do was screw four screws into the back of a chair. I still couldn't do it. All right, let's get to some questions from our listeners.
1: That was a very good uh, poem to start us out with, John. I, uh, <laughs> it was really touching.
0: Okay, let's get to some questions from our listeners. This first one comes from Tyler, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently came into the possession of a very significant amount of LaCroix. I won the grand prize of their <laughs> holiday giveaway, What? which is a year's supply of LaCroix. However, I don't know how much of a grasp LaCroix has on how much of their product even an enthusiast such as myself consumes in a year, as I will be receiving 100 cases of 24 cans apiece which, of course, comes out to 2,400 cans of LaCroix. My question to you is this. What does one do with 2,400 cans of LaCroix? I could, of course, throw a LaCroix-themed party, but what activities could there be besides enjoying the delicious natural essence of LaCroix? Any dubious advice (laughs) is appreciated. Tyler.
1: <laughs> okay. I. Wow. Okay. So I guess this is like a year's supply of Lacroix for a family of four, maybe? No. I l- like Lacroix, but but and I almost came at Tyler for being like, "Are you a true enthusiast if you don't drink?" And then I did the math: six and a half cans of Lacroix a day. That seems like a lot. I think I could drink
0: six and a half cans of. La- Actually, if Lacroix wants to send me 2,400 cans of Lacroix, I will right now guarantee you that i will drink all 2400 cans myself over the course of one year
1: and then you'll just build an airplane with the leftover aluminum
0: well i suppose i suppose there is the 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 environment to (laughs) consider but maybe maybe i'll just use the aluminum to build a new addition onto my house to hold all of my new ikea furniture
1: (laughs) (laughs) i so uh, additional question i didn't realize that when you got a year's supply of something you got it all up front like if you get a year's supply of of Snickers, like do you do you have like a like a area of your house that is now Snickers? Totally. Because I buy like I buy like a like a week or two's worth of food at a time. If I have a year's supply of anything, it's gonna take up more space than all the rest of the food in my house. Especially apparently twenty four hundred cans of LaCroix. Not only that, but I
0: I mean, I'm not an expert in in food safety. Everyone knows that. But it seems to me that drinking a year-old LaCroix has to be not quite as good as drinking, like, a freshly canned LaCroix.
1: I feel deeply that that is not the case. I bet bet there is not a significant chemical difference between those two LaCroix.
0: Tyler, you have to have a series of LaCroix parties. You have to have one (laughs) every month for the entire year. And you'll become known in your community as the LaCroix boy. And it'll be great. It'll be great for you. And then the craziest thing about it, Tyler, is that when all these parties are over, and when you're having the last LaCroix party from your year's supply of LaCroix, you're going to find yourself thinking... I want this to continue just like I did at the end of the uh, Brotherhood 2.0 project I did with my brother and you're going to go out and you're going to buy your own 2400 cans of Lacroix so that you can continue to be the Lacroix boy for the rest of your life and I for one celebrate that Tyler I hope that you have a, a Lacroix party once a month every year every month
1: for the rest of your life um and it's not that expensive. I'm looking at bulk LaCroix and you can get 24 for, for, for just 10 bucks. No, it's a thousand dollars a year. Yeah. You know, you could be spending that, like you probably spend more than that on, on coffee. The question, uh, no, probably not. That'll Where's he getting his coffee? coffee. <laughs> he gets his coffee at the very expensivest coffee place. It's called Shmoosh Me Coffee and it's got all the best and there's meatballs too. Um, I lost the podcast notes, John. <laughs> Okay, I'm back. Um, Question, can you turn your LaCroix into profit? I don't mean resell the LaCroix, but I mean like maybe it'd be like free LaCroix at the thing that you do where you also provide a service or sell Mm. items.
0: That is such a Hank Green way to get rid of 2,400 cans of LaCroix. Is there any way that I you mean, can it's... skirt the rules in order to accidentally make
1: money? <laughs> you could. You could also just save money by saying, "Okay, everybody, I'm having a potluck once a week for you, my friends. Free Lacroix, mm. and I'll also have a bag of chips. You bring food, <laughs> and then That's good. you're getting. You won't have to buy the food as much. That's a great idea. Do
0: you think you'd get tired of Lacroix if you drank six and a half? cans of it a day every day for a year because i don't think i would
1: i assume that they also provided a variety of flavors it's not just just pomplamoose it's a bunch and uh and i think in that case no i would not i'd be like oh but i would i would discover that i had a favorite and i would regret the fact that i had so much tangerine and i don't really like it that much i you know i used to not like tangerine
0: hank i I find myself, whenever I find a LaCroix flavor I don't like, I get it more often as a way of trying to train my palate into understanding why (laughs) the the geniuses (laughs) at LaCroix chose to release this flavor. Like, obviously, they know more about sparkling water than I do. They make the greatest sparkling water in the world. So if they say that tangerine tastes good, I I need to keep drinking it until I understand that they are right. And in the case of tangerine, that did actually happen. Now, there have been a few LaCroix flavors that I just have not been able to bring myself around to, but I haven't quit. I'm very
1: impressed by your efforts, John. Uh, We've talked a lot about LaCroix, and I have several other things to say, but I'm going to move on instead. Does that seem like a good plan?
0: Yeah, sure, if you don't want to get a LaCroix sponsorship, but yeah, go ahead, move on.
1: This question's from Sarah who asks, Dear Hank and John, I've been watching Eons on YouTube recently and I'm absolutely loving it. It's our show at youtube.com slash Eons. In the episode, The Search for Earlier Life, Blake mentions a quote, team of Japanese scientists found some rocks, and the article of their work published showed on screen. What I'm wondering is, in the mention of the scientists being Japanese, is that necessary? Is there something about their study or published work that makes it necessary to inform that the scientists were from Japan? I wonder if this is also similar in literature world of saying like a Japanese writer. Is there inherent racism when mentioning these details, DFTBA Sarah? In general when we talk about scientific publications uh we usually will say on scishow anyway we'll say like a team of scientists from the university of blank uh because you want to give credit to the people from that university what i suspect is the situation here the actual situation is that it was from multiple different japanese universities and so we shortened it to a a team of japanese scientists
0: Uh, yeah that's possible uh i also You hear this a lot with artists, like when artists are identified in wall labels or when they're identified in episodes of The Art Assignment or whatever, their nationality is usually... Stated. And I've heard Mm -hmm. a few reasons for that in talking to curators uh, about this. One of the reasons I've heard is that uh, it helps people to understand that people are doing work all over the world, that people are making art all over the world. Another reason Mm -hmm. is that uh, it helps people to understand where there might be more support for the arts. So one reason you might say a team of Japanese researchers is if it, they were working across multiple universities in Japan, partly with government funding from the Japanese mm-hmm. government. So so yeah, I'm definitely not an expert about this, but I think it's pretty common across disciplines. And when it comes to authors, I usually assume that people state nationality as a way of stating uh, the, the language in which the text was originally written. Uh, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It's always it's always felt very weird to me when I am traveling and people introduce me as an American author. Um, <laughs> I always feel really uncomfortable with that because there's the idea of like the American writer is it's just a little problematic to me for a few reasons. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's move on.
1: But I yeah I do like that um, you know I, I think that it's good to say to to introduce that there is other work going on in other places in the world. Because if you just say a team of researchers, our brains sort of default to the default, and our brain is If you're an American, your your brain will default to it being American. And that might even be the case for a lot of places. A lot of people might assume a team of researchers means a team of American researchers just because there's an awful lot of research that gets done in America. And it's good to spread that love and let people know that interesting things are happening all over the world.
0: All right, Hank, we've got a great, great question from Patrick. Usually I don't enjoy it when people email Dear Hank and John and ask us to do their homework for them. But in this particular (laughs) case, I did enjoy it because because I liked the homework assignment. Patrick writes, Dear John and Hank, In English class we are learning about fake news and propaganda, and as an assessment we have to write a fake news story, among other things. The only problem is I have no idea what to write it on. Can you give me some ideas? Patrick. He also had a very long Latin sign-off, but I'm not even going to try to read it because it (laughs) doesn't lend itself to my talents. But the the good news here, Patrick, is that I am an expert in fake news. I have retweeted so much of it.
1: I mean, the, in the science world, it's so easy to create fake news, and people do it all the time. You'd, all you have to do is say that something that's bad for you is actually good for you. Right. And people will take that up like, it's like, oh, chocolate's good now? Excellent. We're going to write a lot of stories about that. That's excellent headline.
0: Here's the thing, Tyler. A good fake news story does exactly one thing. It confirms a belief that someone already has with a fake fact so Mm -hmm. if you are trying to convince me to retweet fake news tell me that somebody wearing a make america great again hat did something terrible
1: yes yes If you are trying to get
0: somebody who disagrees with me to retweet fake news (laughs) tell them that you know the somebody who committed a, a heinous crime did so because they were such huge fans of hillary clinton
1: or if you want to get john to retweet some fake news you gotta you gotta talk about like write a story in which all of the players of afc wimbledon did something really great to support gun control it's just all of his favorite (laughs) things all in one
0: well okay that's that's actually a good example though hank because one of the keys to fake news is it has to be uh, in an area where the person who's reading it and sharing it doesn't actually know that much about it because it, if it were that if it were that AFC mm-hmm. Wimbledon story I would immediately be suspicious right because like I know a lot about AFC Wimbledon there are no AFC Wimbledon press releases I don't read there are no like <laughs> AFC Wimbledon news stories with which I'm yeah. unfamiliar so like you, 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 don't, you don't play to someone's expertise you play to mm. their
1: biases that's true. That's true. You gotta cut. Co- you gotta come in from an area of of ignorance, and uh, in general, it's just about uh, helping people, f- in a in a kind of way, helping people feel more comfortable in their perspective I- on the world, and uh and and that is the that is the nicest way to say it.
0: Yeah, fake news tells you you were right all along, even when the data said you were wrong. You were right. And that's why you've
1: been eating so much chocolate for your whole life.
0: Also, Patrick, I would like to apologize for having just repeatedly called you Tyler.
1: (laughs) Tyler was the LaCroix boy. Sorry, Uh,
0: it's a fake news podcast today. I'm only calling people by wrong names.
1: Uh, (laughs) Is LaCroix boy spelled with an O-I-X, John? Of course. I hadn't realized that. That's exciting. This next question comes from Mrs. Robinson, who asks, Dear Hank and John, how does one finance baby? <laughs> My husband and I really want a third member of our family to love and cuddle, but we have no idea how to pay for all the things it will need. I can't imagine both of us working full-time with a baby in the house, and it doesn't and doesn't it kind of defeat the purpose of having a baby if you hire someone else to do all the day-to-day loving and kissing and changing of poopy diapers? Will we have to come up with a budget? <laughs> I mean, yes. I can't imagine our current strategy of just spending Uh, Don't spend money will be applicable to having a needy baby depending on us. I haven't read any of the baby books. Do any of them cover budgets? How did you guys and your families decide you could afford this timeless, very tiring, very expensive adventure? Your dubious advice is much appreciated. God bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Great
0: name-specific sign-off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really good.
1: Babies are expensive and forever. Like, they don't stop being expensive unless and until they get a job. And and also probably even a time after that.
0: Yeah, I would say five years after baby gets its first job is maybe when you can begin to think that the
1: money that you make is yours again. <laughs> um I don't so there are books about this but I did find that there were they were separate they were separate kinds of books there was the baby books about babies and then there was the parenting books about parenting and money which like are not and I kind of wish I like and I when I had like my childbirth classes the conversations about money were very infrequent and uh, and uncomfortable with the, all the people in the room. And of course, people are in different situations, and so that is kind of bound to happen to some extent. But um, but it is extremely important to be thinking about it now and, uh, and also to be thinking that, like, yes, your current strategy of just not spending money will not be applicable anymore. Though there are lots of ways to save money and to not spend money and to uh, avoid... Uh, falling into the oh, this thing is so cute, I need to buy it, or uh, you know, d- you know, just just having the things that people give you are fine. Having a baby shower, people are going to give you a bunch of stuff that will get you set off on the right foot. But um, but yes, when your family gets more complicated, you should be thinking about money in a more serious way.
0: Yeah, I do think that budgeting is key. I also want to say. Uh, For the record, I remember when we were going through this, because this was in 2009. I think, Hank, by the time you made the decision to have a baby, you and Catherine were in a pretty secure financial place. Yeah, not, not. yeah, yeah. But when Sarah and I were thinking about having Henry in 2009, we did feel like, oh, maybe we should wait a few years until, you know, hopefully things are a little steadier financially. Um, And we got some advice from people who said, you're never gonna feel ready. And I think that's true, but I think you need to uh, feel ready enough. <laughs> like you aren't, you aren't ever gonna be ready to have a child because it's such an all at once change. It's one of the very mm-hmm. few proper, like event changes in a human life. It, it's really intense and it actually does happen all at once. Unlike most things that are sort of processes that w- we, we try to ritualize with events. I found it very helpful to have a budget but it was still stressful, um, and 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 we were in the scheme of things extremely lucky, and so. But it was still very stressful. Uh-huh. My my main advice to you is to lean into the baby shower if you can, because most of the expensive stuff is upfront costs, except for diapers, which are unbelievably expensive. And I also, just want to say that I don't buy the argument that there's no point in having a baby if you have to have childcare um <laughs> yeah I, I agree there's I plenty of poopy out, diapers because, yeah there's plenty there are plenty of poopy diapers there are plenty of opportunities to love and to hug on your child even if you have to work and sarah and i both worked mm-hmm. uh, when we went back to work when henry was 12 weeks old and i don't think that henry feels any uh, sense of loss from that. In fact, I think it was good for him in some ways to be exposed to different kinds of people and, uh, to be, to feel loved and supported by a variety of people instead of just two. So obviously every family is different. There's, I don't think there's one right way to parent, but I, I don't think that you should feel like it's inherently uh, a tragedy if, uh, if a kid ha- it goes to daycare.
1: Yeah, of course not. Um, and, and also I like, absolutely feel comfortable relying on friends and family uh if you have those those opportunities um both for childcare but also for just financial support if you need that um and uh you know like you're like to some extent uh, if if grandparents are around to help they might very well it, like that yeah
0: they might not i mean it depends on the grandparent they might not. You got a grandparent. You got to live with the family you get. But um, we've been very we've been very lucky, I have to say, um, with lots and lots of uh, our kids get lots and lots of love from lots of places. And that's been a real blessing for us. This next question comes from April, who writes, Dear John and Hank, almost every time I get in my car, I worry that I'll be pulled over for speeding. April, I know exactly what this is like. I've, I spend so much time worrying about being pulled over Hmm. for speeding. I don't speed that much and I've never been pulled over for speeding, but I've seen it in the movies. And I know that the police (laughs) officer asks, do you know how fast you were going? And what frightens me is not the speeding ticket, but how in the world am I going to answer that question? If I say yes, does it make it better because I knew I was speeding and take accountability? Or is it better to say no and feign ignorance? Please help me so I can be prepared if this day ever comes. Not
1: February, Uh. April. This, so this is a, uh, like, I have gotten the question instead of, do you know how fast you were going? It's, do you know why I pulled you over? And Uh, I'm like, no, not that! Oh, God! I could, it could be so many different things! Yeah. I don't. Are you a singing telegram? Is it a good thing?
0: (laughs) My, there's like, I always have this impulse. To confess every crime I've ever committed uh, <laughs> when confronted with a police officer to, for him to be like, hey, do you know why, why I pulled you over? And me to be like, is it because <laughs> is it because I smoked cigarettes when I was 16? <laughs> I did. I bought them. I bought them at Kusa Liquors where they catered is it to your I, spiritual Is it because needs. I
1: kissed Cheryl when I was still kind of going steady with Miranda? Like, is that why?
0: No, that's we were not why. Su- we
1: were super separated.
0: I, think, I promise. Okay, when you get that question, you answer it by saying, I don't know why you pulled me over.
1: That is the correct answer. I do not know why you pulled me over. A police officer once asked me, is there any reason why you're not wearing your seatbelt? And I was wearing my seatbelt. It was just that my shirt was the same color as the seatbelt. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know this thing that I'm wearing help
0: i my assumption has always been that they ask you, do you know why I'm pulling you over on the off chance that you might say, "Is it because of the eight hundred pounds of heroin in my trunk <laughs> is
1: it, uh is it because I'm a murderer <laughs> I've murdered so many people and I've just been waiting to be caught or you just say or you just
0: like sigh and say yes, and then get out of the car and put your hands behind your back um no i <laughs> April, I have not gotten a speeding ticket. This is a point of tremendous pride for me. I have not gotten a speeding ticket since I was 22 years old. However, when I got that speeding ticket when I was 22, uh, I... The moment I began to roll down the window, first off, I was in tears. Secondly, I immediately said to the police officer, I am so sorry. This is entirely my fault. I did not know what the speed limit was, and I am sorry. And I thought, you know, maybe that'll get me a war. It didn't. It got me a $242 uh, speeding ticket. Yeah, but no. that, that's my recommendation, April. Just listen. Um, make no sudden movements. And, (laughs) and everything is going to probably be okay, but I, I, I can't completely, I share this worry, so I feel like I can't completely, uh, calm you down.
1: Yeah. My, my last time I got a speeding ticket was, uh, September 22nd, 2000, uh, what was it? Seven, I think. Okay. Uh, and I, I know that because it's the day before I got married.
0: Oh (laughs) man you were in a right state it was 2000 it was 2006 <laughs> by the way it was 2006 oh
1: shoot it was 2006 okay. i recently yeah, right.
0: i recently got into a car accident uh, hank my first car accident in oh no yeah almost yeah. 15 years and it is so true that when you're in an in an emotionally overwhelmed place, you become a much worse driver. I ran into a postal service vehicle, which was tremendously (laughs) embarrassing, but also annoying, because even though the damage was quite minor, of course, that car is owned by the United States federal government. And so there were layers involved in getting, you know, to the point where I could drive away. And It would never have happened except that my poor dog is dying and it's been it's been a very stressful couple of months. And then also there are a bunch of professional stresses uh, going on at the same time. And I the moment I backed into this postal vehicle, I was just (laughs) like, oh, this never would have happened if I'd been not stressed out. And that is exactly what it was like before your wedding. You were you were in a state.
1: I was in a state. I was, I even know that that's like the place where the cops pull people over. You should always, it's like the speed limit goes from like 35 to 25 for this like four block stretch and it d- the yeah. road doesn't change at all. It's cause it's by the hospital and yeah, I, I did, I did the thing, John, but it's, uh, yeah, it turned out okay. Thank you for being with me during that, during that stressful time. I don't know why. That's like the most freaked out I've been in my whole life. <laughs> like, yeah. and I was well, so happy about thing. it. Like,
0: right. It was just oh, it's not yeah. it's not it's not about whether you're happy about it it's just a really intense thing and i i i remember my wedding as mostly being very very intense i often say that like the first 12 hours of my marriage were the most difficult 12 hours so far <laughs> I, I, <laughs> my wedding really really stressed me out so yeah. i i can relate
1: yeah i mean once it happened i was super super down um it was the it was the 24 48 hours beforehand that was not Uh, It's just events, man, they're hard, it's hard to run an event. (laughs) Then I did it for a living for 10 years. <laughs> you are like, you're like, I'm so good at
0: this, I think I should make it my
1: job. <laughs> this next question has come from Katya who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just listened to your podcast episode in which you give advice on how to befriend a crow. It just so happens that I have the opposite of that problem. For some reason, my roommate decided to become friends with the many crows that live in our neighborhood every time she goes out. Oh boy. Oh boy. Every time she goes out, she feeds them some walnuts in the hope that they will recognize her face and see her as an ally. I guess that'll, oh come, God. that'll come in handy when the, the apocalypse rolls around and you got a bunch of bird friends. I told her from the start that I thought this was a bad idea. The crows creep me out. Why would it, you want to befriend them? Well, a few weeks ago, I woke up and got a heart attack when I saw four crows perched in a row on the balcony railing. They were watching me sleep. <laughs> I think the crows, right. uh They won't go away. How do I unfriend the murder?
0: Oh, God. I forgot that a group of crows... What's a group of crows called, Henry? Do you remember? A murder. A murder of crows. Henry's here, by the way. Henry, do you want to say hi to the podcast? Hi, hi Henry. Um, hey, Henry, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea to become friends with crows? A good idea? Why? I could fly on their backs? You mean like a group of crows could like hold me up and take me places? I guess, but they're crows. I mean, couldn't I do the same thing with like golden eagles? Wouldn't that be cooler? (laughs) All right. It It would hurt more because of their beaks. Why? Their talons. Mm -hmm. I guess that's true. Henry's thought this through. He thinks that you should befriend
1: crows so that you can fly yeah. places. well, maybe that's what your roommate is thinking of, Katya. <coughs> I don't want, yeah. like, the thing is, the difference between unfriending a crow and making a crow enemy seems very fraught.
0: I agree, that's a very fine line. And as much as you don't want to be friends with these crows who are watching you sleep, the thing you really don't want, Katya, is to have a bunch of enemies. I have crow enemies. Yeah. That sounds very scary. This is, the exact,
1: then they, this is the exact same problem I have with Facebook. Is like, I maybe I don't, like, I'm just.
0: Enemies. You could just get a bat and hit them. No. You could <laughs> no, what? He, get, he said you could just get a bat and hit them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you can't do that, Henry.
0: <laughs> it's a solution,
1: but <laughs> I think it's a crime. Uh, yeah, it's also, uh, they're very fast, crows. This is the I feel like the exact problem that I have with Facebook, which is I can't like I feel like not being friends with someone on Facebook. Once you are friends with them is like a very active decision. And right. that I do not want I just want to be like, I just don't like you're just not part of my life anymore. But I don't want to say like unfriended like i like I'm hitting them off of my Facebook stream with a bat and just be like, you're out. Uh, and, yeah. and I have, and, and so, and thus, the crow situation also must be dealt with similarly, which is just ghost them.
0: Yeah, Katcha, you're gonna have to ghost not just the crows, but definitely your roommate. I would argue <laughs> that the underlying issue here is the roommate, and, like, I, I'm not telling you to be terrified of your roommate and her crow befriending activities, but, I mean, do... Move. <laughs>
1: uh, are the crows on Facebook? Can you unfriend them that way?
0: Oh, that's a good idea. Try to make try to be as passive aggressive about it as possible. Or just I would be like, definitely... look,
1: crows, crows. I'm not. I'm just not doing this anymore. I'm moving to Vero. Vero is this new social network and it's totally cool because it's not like Facebook because it's different from Facebook in ways. And so if you're not going to move over to Vero, we just can't be friends.
0: And the most important way it's different from Facebook is that crows aren't allowed to join.
1: Yeah. And crows can't join Vero. I know that that's weird, but it's just like for now until the, the network gets bigger, they can't, they can't have crows on.
0: So much of my life I didn't have a Facebook, and I think on
1: average,
0: I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. Let's move on to a different question.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Vero, that new social network that everyone's talking about that is different from Facebook somehow.
0: Today's podcast is also brought to you by Singing Policeman Telegrams. (laughs) Singing Policeman Telegrams, the best reason for getting pulled over. Do you
1: know how fast you're going? It's 37, your birthday! (laughs) Uh, This podcast is also brought to you by Tyler, the LaCroix boy. Tyler, the LaCroix boy. Go to his potlucks. There's free LaCroix.
0: And lastly, today's podcast is brought to you by Ikea Furniture. Ikea Furniture, testing the well-being of marriages and individuals (laughs) since 1971. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and for the planet. With the same powerful clean that you're used to, Blue Land products are effective and affordable, and their toilet tablets are proven to work on a wide range of toilet stains, including rust, mineral deposits, lime scale, and hard water. And you can even get more savings by buying refills in bulk or setting up a subscription. Blue Land has a special offer for our listeners right now. You can get fifteen percent off your first order by going to blueland.com/dearhank. You won't want to miss this, BlueLand.com slash DearHank for 15% off. That's BlueLand.com slash DearHank to get 15% off.
1: And also, we have a Project for Awesome message from Jackie in Colorado. This message is for Maggie. Uh, As donation to the Project for Awesome, thank you very much for that, Jackie. It says, "Happy 25th birthday, Mags!" As it turns out, sending 25 puppies to you in Scotland is a little bit impractical, but I figured a podcast announcement would be an entertaining alternative gift. Plus, it's for charity. Have a fantastic day celebrating and take a well-deserved study break. The Green Brothers said it, so you have to follow through. Ta ta la di da dee day. do not forget to be awesome. Hank, completely
0: messed that up, but I'm going to crush it. Are you ready, Maggie? Here
1: it okay. la di dee da day.
0: and don't forget to be awesome.
1: What is, is that a thing that I should know about?
0: No, I just, I, I just read it correctly, and you read it uh. wrong.
1: ta ta la da day. No. still doesn't sound right. Ta-ta-la-dee-dee-da-dee. ta ta la dee dee da day. Ta-ta-la-di-di-dot-ay. It's like yeah, when, I don't know. I feel like that's probably from something, right? Nah,
0: it's like when I uh, it's probably it probably is from Avatar: The Last Airbender, and we're about to get two hundred fifty thousand <laughs> correction notes. <laughs> uh, whenever I try to say something in Spanish, Henry just looks at me blankly for the longest time, and then eventually he'll say it back to me, but correctly and Mm. then i'll try to say it correctly and he'll just he it's the first time i've seen him roll his eyes he's begun to just roll his eyes and say no dad you can't do it (laughs) so stop trying it's an embarrassment this next question comes from amy who writes dear john and hank i often hear life advice saying things along the lines of follow your passion and dreams but is it wrong to want a nine to five job and have your passions be side gigs Why do so many songs have lines bragging about not having a 9-to-5 job? I'm about to finish an undergrad in music, and while I love playing instruments, I'm extremely exhausted from the lack of a daily routine in my class and rehearsal schedules, and from what I can tell from talking to my teachers, that's what a career in music is. Am I a quitter or letting down myself or my teachers if I get a nice 9-to-5 job in the best place on earth, a library, and be a part-time musician? Not wanting to disappoint, Amy. Man, Amy, it seems like you got your stuff together. Yeah. Seems like you know exactly what you want. Amy, you're crushing it. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not crushing it. You know what you what you wanna do for a job. You want to work in a library, which is awesome, and you know what you want to do as a side gig, which is awesome as well. I think this is great, and it's also really wonderful if you understand about yourself that you're someone who benefits from routine and structure, and that's where you thrive. Like, I... That took me a long time to understand about myself, and when I stopped having a job, I'd always had day jobs and sort of wrote at night and on the weekends, and I was very comfortable with that, but then when we had enough money for me to stop doing that and I was able to write full-time, I was like, oh, this is great. I'm going to be living the dream. That's the dream, to write all day, and within like two weeks of living the dream, I was like... This is terrible. Like, I understand that this is the dream, but it turns out it's not my dream, like my dream involves a certain amount of routine and seeing other adults during the day and lots of other things that weren't possible for me when I was ostensibly writing full time. And so slowly I built more and more day jobs so that I could come to an office, work nine to five and write at night and on the weekends, because that's where I'm productive and happy.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the ways that we imagine the success and how insidious that can be um, when, when we create definitions of success that re- require things almost like it's almost sort of a, a requirement that a, a, any definition of success that really resonates with us is something that only a few people can have. And yeah. like, otherwise, if everybody can have it, that can't be that great, right? Right. And that is such a destructive, terrible thing, not just for individuals, but for society as a whole. Cause we need to like have a society where the most people possible can be experiencing their lives as a worthwhile, exciting success. And I like, it's really, and, and like, I've I've become very sort of like apprehensive about the the things that I do for a living and people seeing that as a goal that they want to have because this is definitionally like my job is definitionally something that can only be had by not very many people because you need a large audience in order to support like a YouTube show or a podcast and so not everybody can have a a large audience because there's unless more time of the day gets manufactured so. I, I worry about that and and uh, having gone through and watched uh, the first season of the New Queer Eye on Netflix, I, I you know seeing those people sort of moving to a place where they are more happy with and accepting of their life as it exists um, is is really exciting though I worry that like in the examples given in that show, like it requires a bunch of money to be spent on your clothes and your hair and your house. And, I, like, it worries me. And, like, I love the show. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm a super fan of of this, and I wish there were more episodes. I can't I, – I, like, got really sad when I found out that it was over. But I just want there to be ways for us to feel like a successful people without having to have that be based on other people and, like, and and sort of, like, maybe somewhat unrealistic expectations for what a life can be.
0: Yeah, I mean, the other thing about that, Hank, and – You know, I obviously come to this question from an extraordinarily privileged and specific Mm -hmm. perspective. But my experience has been both in in having a measure of uh, public renown and in knowing lots of people with, with much more public renown. It is tremendously overrated. Like it is overrated on on a scale that baffles me because the truth is and it's a hard truth to to talk about i think but the truth is that it it, for for lots and for most people i think it's very disorienting it's very scary it's not particularly uh fun and there's a feeling at least i i felt this after the success of the fault in our stars um and again i want to acknowledge how grateful I am for that success and and how wonderful it was. But I, I also think that, to be fair, I should acknowledge that, like, I was not having a good time. Like, I was not, I was deeply, deeply unhappy, and I was sick, and I was scared all the time, and I was completely overwhelmed. And I realized that it was another time when I realized that, like, just because something is the dream just because something is is the thing that you're told to try to accomplish by the social order doesn't mean it's necessarily the thing you actually want to accomplish but it's so so hard to disentangle your interests and your passions and who you are from what the social order wants you to be or what the social order values and so one of the things i loved about this question is that you know this is someone who seems to have a pretty good handle on who she is and what she wants. And I think, Amy, you should celebrate that. I think you should be excited about that. And I think you should pursue the life that you want to have, especially because you're lucky to understand what that is.
1: Agree. I think it's a thing that we all uh, would do well to think more about that stuff, Um, not just for our own sakes, but for everybody's. Because we're maybe headed into a world where it gets harder and harder to to lead the kind of life that people can imagine as a success. And that that leads to a much less happy society, which has a lot of negative impacts. I got another question, John. It's from Anna, and it's about sand. Dear Hank and John, how much sand is there?
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is a great question. I know the answer. You know the answer to how much sand there is? Yeah. I do. How much sand is there? Who asked the question again is her name Anna? Yeah. Anna, I'm about to blow your mind. Okay. Y- you probably already know this Anna, but I still think it's amazing. There are more stars <laughs> in the universe <laughs> than there are grains of sand on Earth
1: or something like that.
0: No, there it's not even
1: close. Okay, I believe you. That's it. I am, I, I I believe I, I... That's There's a Carl Sagan quote that's, there are more stars, I think, in the galaxy than there are grains of sand on every beach in the world. The thing that, to be really specific about, though, John, is we don't know how many grains of sand there are in the universe. And that's what Anna asked about. Oh. How much sand is there? Oh, yeah.
0: Like, in the universe, there's a lot of sand, Anna. It's, I mean, there's a ton. <laughs> like, well, actually, way more than a ton. There's a lot of sand in the universe.
1: <laughs> Just there's a lot i the question of whether my guess is that there is more sand in the universe than there are stars in the universe but i don't know that for certain but that's my oh. guess cuz i bet there's a lot of a lot of good uh, rocky planets with water running around making yeah, sand. Yeah, it's very, very, very And Mars very, seems very to be probable. like mostly sand. There's a lot of sand on Mars. Yeah. Or dust, I guess, whatever the difference is between those things. So yeah, I think there's probably a lot of, there's a lot of sand.
0: You want to know something else weird that I learned from the same thing where I learned this about the sand? Yeah. If you took 10 drops of water, regular drops of water, and you counted the number of molecules of H2O in those 10 drops of water. Mm-hmm you would get a number approximately equal to all the stars in the universe.
1: Uh, Okay.
0: But what about sand though, John? Well, I I already told you there is more, (laughs) there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on Earth. Um, So how about, so this is the answer. To, okay, if you assume a grain of sand has an average size and you calculate how many grains are in a teaspoon and then multiply by all the beaches and deserts in the world, the earth has roughly, and we're speaking very roughly here, 7.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sand, or 7 quintillion 500 quadrillion grains of sand, whereas the, the universe has... Just an absolute crap ton of stars.
1: <laughs> the the number is non specific, but it's more than ten to the eighteen. It's bigger than that, which I believe. Uh, that, no,
0: I no, I'm pretty sure that isn't that the current. Wait, hold on! Isn't that the current thought about how many stars there are in the universe? An
1: absolute crap ton. Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Like not a not a relative crap ton, but an absolute.
1: Absolute crap ton. Uh, Anna's question actually goes on to say. Since sand is made from rocks getting crumbled up into pieces, there's more and more sand being made all the time, right? Is that balanced out by the creation of new sedimentary rock? Is the amount of so- is the amount of sand increasing or decreasing? If it's increasing, does that mean that there's infinite sand? Bun, Anna, banana, banana. Mm, that's uh, a great name-specific sign-off. It so,
0: it's important to understand something here, Anna, which is that. Um, even if the amount of grains of sand is increasing, there's a finite amount yeah. of matter on Earth. So the n- number of grains of sand will never be infinite. Correct. So that's good because it means <laughs> that even... But in
1: the universe, there might be infinite sand in the universe, unfortunately. Possibly. Just to confuse matters further. That's true. It,
0: it could. It's possible, but it's hard to know for sure. Um <laughs> There are seven times ten to the twenty-second stars uh, in the known universe. Oh, that's according, that's way more.
1: That's way more than we got, Sans.
0: To this website, and so that is actually the scientific definition of an absolute crap ton. Is seven times ten to the twenty-second.
1: Yeah, like the 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 systems, the plate tectonics that is currently sort of that that is converting. Uh, the geological processes generally that is converting sand into sedimentary rock is going on and will continue going on. Whether or not those things are in balance at the moment, I don't know. I don't know if there's, like, more sand being made by crumbling than there is sedimentary rock being made. But you are quite correct and intelligent to identify the fact that uh, sand eventually becomes rock again, which is
0: pretty cool. All right, Hank. So... We know that there is a finite amount of sand on Earth and that that situation will continue.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you want to give me the news from AFC Wimbledon, John? I,
0: uh, I mean, part of me does, part of me doesn't. Uh, OK, here's the news from AFC Wimbledon, Hank. We played Peterborough uh, in, in League One, the third tier of English football. Uh, it was a good game. Uh, Lyle Taylor scored a fantastic goal uh, and it looked like uh, AFC Wimbledon were going to get three points, which would have been very, very useful. But then Peterborough scored an equalizer. Which is extremely frustrating and disheartening, and so it was a one-one draw. Uh, AFC Wimbledon uh, got one point, which moved them from 37 points to 38 points. Uh, they remain in 18th place, but they are only uh, two points away right now uh, from a relegation spot. Uh, the 36 points is what the team in 21st have. 21st, 22nd, 23rd, and 24th will all spend next season in the fourth tier of English football. So Wimbledon are two points clear of the drop zone right now with 12 games to play. From those 12 games, we need about 14 points to guarantee our place in league or close to guarantee our place in league one next season. Hank, uh, how many points per game is that?
1: I don't know. While you're
0: thinking about it, I'm going to go on and give you an update (laughs) but in all likelihood we actually need uh, 14 points from 11 games because our next game is against Blackburn and they are at the top of League One and are just amazing this year I mean as third tier English football teams go uh, and will very likely beat AFC Wimbledon I think even yeah so then we need 14 (laughs) points from 11 games Basically, we still need to win five games, but now we only have eleven games in which to do it. So uh, I am officially very nervous.
1: Well, you need one point two seven points per game (sighs) to get a lot of points in those. Yeah, to get the fourteen points out of the eleven games.
0: It's 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 nerve wracking. So oh gosh, that is scary. It's it's I it's there's nothing obviously that I can do about it from the United States, um, but it is. Oh, God, it's it's a worry. I just I just really hope the Dons find a way to stay up. I think that they've got some great young talent. I think things could look really good next year. And then hopefully the year after that, we'll be in the new stadium. Uh, and that will be a huge, huge deal uh, for the future and the security of the club. So... Ah, Yeah, if we could stay in League One for another two seasons, it would be great, but obviously uh, it's going to be tough this year. I will say Simon Bassey, who's been with the club uh, since they were formed, he participated in the tryouts on Wimbledon Common back in 2002 and was part of the team uh, for a few years before joining the coaching staff. Uh, Simon Bassey had a great series of kind of come-to-Jesus moments with the fans where he was like, look, we used to have the smallest stadium in League Two. Now we have the smallest stadium in League One. Uh, The odds have always been stacked against us. And I know that it's really frustrating to watch your team go out and struggle week Mm -hmm. after week. But um, we need to be in this together. You know, the great thing about having a fan owned club is that we really are in it together. All of us who are members of the Don's Trust own the club just as much as Simon Bassey or any other fan does. And so um, that was really heartening and inspiring to me, the way he talked about all of us being in this together and how the team was going to need the fans. Fans, just as the fans were going to need the team so i am worried but i am also feeling that resolve that he has instilled in me
1: great great and it's not and and you will uh, go back and have the biggest uh stadium in the fourth or the smallest stadium in the fourth tier until that stadium gets finished and you know that'll still be impressive that you're that you've come uh, so far
0: i'd really rather not suffer Wimbledon's first relegation since being reformed in 2002 but
1: Obviously, the, yeah, the universe that time is is infinite, John, it will have to happen eventually.
0: Mm, not that that is not true. Oh. That is not true. The, okay. the, it is very possible that the world will end before Wimbledon ever get relegated. and And may that be the case?
1: <laughs> I mean, no. No? Yes. <laughs> yes. What's okay. the news from Mars? In news from Mars, uh, the Trace Gas Orbiter, which is part of the ExoMars Exploration Program, which is two missions, one of which crashed into Mars, but this one did not. Uh, the European led mission has, uh just finished its uh, very long term aerobraking maneuver to get into the orbit that it needs to be in to. Uh, to do its science. So when you go to Mars, uh, you, you are going very fast because you have to get there. You have to get out of the Earth's uh, gravity. You have to be accelerating out of, um, you know, away from the sun to get further away from the sun. And then you get there, you're going very fast. You have to slow down. There's two ways to do that, really. Uh, one is you have rockets that have fuel and you use those rockets to slow down and go into orbit around around the planet. And that, then you have to carry all that fuel with you, which is bad. But sometimes uh, missions will just crash into the atmosphere going as like just crazy fast, burn off some ablative plates and have parachutes to slow down and rockets to slow down. Uh, And they use mostly, but though they use the atmosphere to slow down. But when you're an orbiter, you can't just crash into the planet and slam into the atmosphere like that. So instead, you like they have this very long period of time where I think over 900 times, the orbiter went around the planet and on one of the orbits, it skims the back, or on, on one side of the orbit, it skims the planet's atmosphere and then it goes way out in this long looping orbit. Um, and then it comes again, it skims the atmosphere again and each time it slows down a little bit because it crashes into the the atoms on the very very top layer of the Mar- of the very thin Martian atmosphere. And that's what ExoMars has been doing for over a year it's been it's been slamming into the uh, into those atoms slowing down and now it is in its final uh, final orbit and that means it can start soon doing its uh, its actual science mission which will be uh, mostly figuring out, this mystery that we've got on Mars right now, or or at least part of this mystery, which is methane. <clears throat> we have detected methane on the surface of Mars several times. There's debate about whether that methane was actually on Mars or whether it was somehow trapped on the land that landed on Mars. We've seen methane several times, but we need a more sensitive instrument and this trace gas orbiter is going to be has those instruments, it'll be able to tell uh, how much methane there is in the Martian atmosphere, or where that methane maybe is coming from. And that's very important, uh, not just because it's interesting, but because methane on Earth is mostly produced by life. And if there is some tiny trace amount of weird life on Mars, it might be producing methane. It might also be consuming methane. And, uh, and so understanding the methane cycle on Mars could be a really important part of understanding what Uh, weird trace life might actually be uh, uh, happening on the surface of that planet or beneath the surface.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. You know what else is news from Mars this week?
1: What? Uh, Noted
0: Mars fanatic Elon Musk revealed that (laughs) uh, his global broadband uh, Starlink (laughs) network this constellation that he is building uh, to try to bring global broadband to uh, people, especially people who are currently left behind by so much of the technological revolution, Um, that the name for it was inspired by The Fault in Our Stars, my book, or
1: more likely the movie. (laughs) You don't think, I mean, who knows? Uh, So apparently Elon's a John Green fan uh what does he Leon is a fan Muss, of, he, does leon Musk have any feelings about this sitch
0: no leon Musk has gone quiet recently i'm not sure what's going on with him um <laughs> i know you said that that was only gonna be like a thing that lasted for a few weeks and but i'm committed to making sure it lasts for the entire 12 years of this stupid mars bet however right now i'm i'm like i don't enjoy twitter enough at the moment to be completely honest with you to have a novelty account um <laughs> It's I the just only, barely the enjoy it way to, to be on Twitter. I just barely enjoy it enough to tweet my uh, new VlogBrothers video every week. But uh, but yeah, I was really excited about that. I thought that was pretty cool. So thank you, Elon Musk, for uh, including me, making me a footnote in the incredible story of global broadband, Mars, Falcon heavy rockets, etc. Um, and uh, thank you, Hank, for being the reason that i care enough about this stuff to follow elon musk on twitter in the first place
1: (laughs) all right john what did we learn today
0: well uh we (laughs) learned that ikea furniture is just waiting at my house to be made
1: oh yeah can't you get like a task rabbit to come help you out with that stitch? no i'm gonna do it by myself well with sarah and we learned that 7 times 10 to the 22 is the technical definition of an absolute crap ton. Uh, we
0: learned that working 9 to 5 is just fine if you like working 9 to 5.
1: And finally, we learned that there is no such thing as too much LaCroix. Or at least I'd
0: like to find out if there's such a thing as too much LaCroix.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Uh, thank you for podcasting with me. It's been a joy. And thank everybody for listening. And if you leave ratings on iTunes, that's really great too or whatever podcast machine you use to get podcasts into your podcast ears this podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins it's produced by Rosianna hulse Rojas and Sheridan Gibson our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno the music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. and as they say in our hometown don't forget to be awesome